It's September in the year 2000. We are somewhere in rural California. Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph, the co-founders of a DVD-by-mail company, receive the phone call they had been hoping to receive for the past few months. The pair had founded their DVD subscription service in 1997. And according to Randolph in his 2019 book he called That Will Never Work, he and Hastings had already turned down the opportunity to be acquired by a little e-commerce website named Amazon two years earlier. But by 2000, their company was on track to lose more than $50 million that year. And all of a sudden, the prospect of being acquired seemed far more pleasant. So when they got this call on an autumn afternoon in the year 2000, during a little company retreat in California, well, they were ecstatic. On the line, the icon of the home video rental market, a company whose prominent placement in your local neighborhood strip mall was as familiar as their classic blue and yellow store aesthetic. It was Blockbuster. So Blockbuster, based in Dallas, tells Randolph and Hastings in California, sure, we'll meet with you, if you can get here by tomorrow. You could call that a power move on Blockbuster's part. I could think of another word for it. But the pair says, yes, without hesitation, they charter a plane, and less than 12 hours later, they're in Dallas, sitting in Blockbuster's swanky corporate headquarters. Randolph described their rival's office building as an unbroken cube of steel and glass. He posited that Blockbuster's then-CEO, John Antioco, was wearing shoes that cost more than Randolph's car. Now, remember, this is 2000. It would be years before any semblance of consequential online video streaming would begin to emerge. YouTube was five years away from being conceived. Heck, VHS tapes still dominated the home entertainment market. DVDs wouldn't even surpass them in sales for another two years. But Randolph and Hastings had a vision for the future. One that they felt aligned perfectly with where Blockbuster would want to go in the years to follow. So, they make their pitch. Hastings tells the Blockbuster team, Look, you keep doing what you do well. Focus on store expansion, the brick-and-mortar piece of the business, and we'll take care of your online business. Together, we will be unstoppable. The Blockbuster team bristles at the concept. They begin debating the merits of Hastings' proposition. Randolph even remembers Blockbuster CEO John Antioco reducing the internet to dot-com hysteria, that it was all hype. Finally, the two are at a standoff. And one of the Blockbuster executives asks Hastings, Okay, if we were to buy your company, how much would you want for it? Hastings replied, $50 million. And, by their account, the team at Blockbuster struggles not to laugh. The meeting ends. The two companies part ways for good. And that was the last opportunity Blockbuster had to acquire that little DVD subscription company. You know the one. 
the one named Netflix. Netflix adding 15.7 million subscribers in the quarter. That's about double what analysts expected. Video rental chain Blockbuster has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Competition from the likes of Netflix and Redbox weighed on the retailer dependent on its brick-and-mortar infrastructure. By now, you know what happened after that fateful meeting in the year 2000. Over the course of the next two decades, Netflix would soar, transitioning from a DVD subscription service to a digital streaming platform. And then again to an entertainment conglomerate that produces original content and has a market valuation approaching $200 billion. Blockbuster, the quintessential American home video rental company, a chain synonymous with weekend entertainment that had close to 6,000 stores in the United States alone in the middle of the 2000s, would be eviscerated by their online rival, struggling to adapt in an ever more digital world and spiraling into bankruptcy by 2010. The company had already begun shuttering stores in droves prior to their Chapter 11 restructuring, accelerating closures each year beginning in 2005. In 2011, they were acquired by Dish Network, who won the rights to Blockbuster at a bankruptcy auction and still owns the rights to their intellectual property. But the brand would never reemerge. Today, if you visit Blockbuster.com, the site that Netflix had offered to run 20 years ago, you are greeted with a single bleak landing page, offering a redirect link to Dish Network and a haunting button perched at the top right corner inviting you to search for a Blockbuster store location. And if you click that button, you are given the address and phone number of the last remaining Blockbuster, located in Bend, Oregon, kept alive to this day by a single franchisee. For its visitors, it's more museum than a place of commercial utility, a time capsule into the past where procuring weekend entertainment meant getting off your couch and venturing down row after row of new releases and manually recommended non-algorithmic movie choices. If you ask someone, anyone, who killed Blockbuster, you'll usually be greeted with one word, rather instinctively. Netflix. And if you go deeper, if you dig into some of the case studies, the eulogistic media stories, you'll be told, well, it was Netflix. Plus adjacent competitors like Redbox, plus a flawed business model, and changing consumer tastes, and a host of bad executive decisions. Either way, Blockbuster is held up, colloquially and academically, as a dinosaur, as a symbol of what happens when you fail to innovate. Symbolic for the dangers of corporate hubris, the tale of a company that didn't recognize where the future was heading, and was therefore unprepared to maintain relevance when that future arrived. But what if that wasn't true? What if Netflix didn't kill Blockbuster? What if Blockbuster wasn't a dinosaur? What if it wasn't the Titanic that failed to see the iceberg fast enough before changing direction? I think we need to reconsider everything we think we think about the story of Blockbuster. Why? 
because it might change everything we believe about innovation, about how we plan for the future, and how we think about the past. The good news? I don't think Netflix killed Blockbuster. The bad news? I'm about to offer you a far more complex villain. Before we jump back into Blockbuster, I want to engage you in a little thought experiment. Let's pretend that your best friend calls you today and tells you that she just inherited a fortune. She says, I'm putting all of this money into a trust fund. I'm not going to allow myself to touch any of it so that when I die, it will be given away to charity because I can help so many people with it. So she puts the money away and she has a legal document drawn up that says it cannot be touched unless you, her best friend, revokes it. But she makes you promise her that you will never do such a thing. She says to you, in the future, if I try to touch the money, if I approach you, no matter how much I beg and plead, no matter what my reasons are, promise me that you will never let me touch the money. She tells you her ideals, her pledge to help society above all else, this is essential to who she is. And if she loses those ideals, well, she ceases to exist. So, decades go by, and wouldn't you know, one day your friend approaches you and she begs you to revoke the documents. At this point, she has a family, and she wants to provide for her kids, plus she's got some medical bills, and she has all these other ideas on what she can do with the money. So, what would you do? Would you revoke the documents? Hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Now, I want to present to you an alternative theory of Blockbuster's demise. If you dig into the casework and the editorials on what went wrong with Blockbuster, you can more or less synthesize it all down to four main reasons. One, there's this overarching theme that Blockbuster failed to understand what business it was in. In other words, the company saw itself as being in the video rental business, when in fact, if it had broadened its vision to something more future-oriented and less tactical, like say being in the business of offering entertainment to its consumers, perhaps they may have pivoted away from brick and mortar faster. Two, the company was complacent. After all, they were the number one brand in the home video rental space for decades, and there's this feeling that all of this success made them less hungry, that leadership couldn't imagine a world where they could get picked off by some tech-driven startup. Three, they didn't embrace where technology was headed. Think back to the story at the beginning of the episode where Blockbuster executives effectively laughed Netflix out of the room for seeing so much potential in online commerce in the year 2000. There's this prevailing notion that Blockbuster failed to embrace how technology would dramatically alter their business model. A business model that, many experts argued, was already too reliant on penalizing consumers with late fees, which people hated. It's estimated 15-20% to 20 of Blockbuster's annual revenue came from late fees alone. 
And four, they had no answers for their competitors. And it's not just Netflix. Think big box stores like Walmart and Best Buy who began offering DVDs at competitive prices, sometimes even taking a loss on the sale just to get more foot traffic into their stores. Or think Redbox, who effectively automated Blockbuster's rental model, with thousands of video rental kiosks placed outside of grocery stores and pharmacies that beat Blockbuster on price. Or think Apple, or Amazon, or the movie studios, or anyone else that has come out with the over-the-top entertainment model in the past 10 or so years. There's an argument that Blockbuster was late to the party every step of the way, that they didn't spend enough time imagining who their competitors would be in the future, and they didn't contemplate all of the ways their competitors could undercut them. That's, by and large, the prosecution's argument. The prosecution being academics, journalists, and industry experts. Now, let me try to chip away at it. First, let me reframe this narrative that I set up at the beginning, which you've probably heard before, that Netflix versus Blockbuster was David versus Goliath. The plucky, resilient upstart against the bumbling, stuck-in-the-past behemoth. Because Blockbuster was struggling to tread water long before Netflix arrived. According to a 2019 profile of Blockbuster on the website Retail Dive, the video rental chain was not profitable for nearly 15 consecutive years prior to its bankruptcy filing. When Netflix arrived to negotiate with Blockbuster in 2000, they had already suffered through three consecutive years of losses, ranging from about $70 million to more than $300 million each year. For the next decade, the company would have only one profitable year, and their losses actually topped a billion dollars in 2002 at the height of their so-called dominance. Second, in regards to the notion that the company didn't try to innovate or diversify, that's really not the full story. For years, Blockbuster did try to find ways to diversify their offerings. They contemplated a theme park-style entertainment complex in the early 1990s. They began adding video games and merchandise to their stores in the late 1990s. They launched a loyalty program in 1998 that somewhat resembled a subscription service. And in the mid-2000s, they did launch an online DVD subscription business. Granted, it was reactive, it was in response to Netflix, but it was one that amassed more than 2 million subscribers in just under two years. In 2006, the company launched Blockbuster Total Access, which let subscribers return buy-mail movies to a store in exchange for a free rental. According to an article in the Dallas Morning News, after Blockbuster Total Access launched, Netflix actually did take a hit. They lost 55,000 subscribers in the second quarter of 2007. And Blockbuster did try to eliminate late fees multiple times over the course of the life of their business. The problem was, it never led to an uptick in volume. In other words, people would complain about late fees, and they would tell Blockbuster that if those late fees were eliminated, they would be more frequent consumers. But that wasn't true. 
In the periods that Blockbuster eliminated late fees, there was no significant increase in consumer visitation or spending. Basically, all it did was drop a valuable source of revenue. Okay, let's pause here and let me come at this a different way. If you were to ask someone what was the date that Blockbuster sealed their fate, what was the date that, based on some new competitor or some decision Blockbuster made, what was the moment that sank Blockbuster? Some people may give you the date that Netflix was founded, or the date that Blockbuster decided against acquiring them or a handful of other dates where they ended up making the wrong business decision, like when they chose to keep building new stores instead of investing in technology in the early 2000s. But I will give you a different date. My date is October 19th, 1985. The date that the first Blockbuster store opened. Now, I know this sounds pretty deterministic, but honestly, I think Blockbuster's fate was sealed the moment they opened their doors. They didn't know it at the time, but my contention is that there was an expiration date on their business when they welcomed their first guest to that Dallas Blockbuster video store. Remember, Blockbuster spent years scaling a brick-and-mortar presence. For more than half of Blockbuster's relevant business life, most retailers had no significant online sales. Even Walmart didn't launch a website where consumers could pick up purchases in-store until 2007. Back then, scaling meant investing a lot of money in retail development, in building stores. So that's what Blockbuster did. They built a ton of stores, and it did lead them to profitability, just as their models suggested, at around the height of their retail footprint. This business model of profitability at scale, of foregoing profit in the short term, or even taking on a ton of debt, with the bet that it will pay off at some critical mass long term, that's the same bet that Netflix took. And today, Netflix has something like $15 billion worth of debt on their books. I mean, really, can you call a story David versus Goliath when David has $15 billion invested in them? I think the problem for Blockbuster was that companies like Netflix and Redbox had the good fortunes of being born at a different time. Of course those companies were able to pivot quicker than Blockbuster, they didn't have the capital investments Blockbuster had tied up in physical places. For Netflix, transitioning from a DVD subscription service to an over-the-top streaming model was a risky bet, but a bet of only money. For Blockbuster, it was a bet of money and of assets, stores they had just built that they would have had to eaten tremendous losses for. And by the way, these assets analysts often so coldly speak of, every single one of them represents people. For Blockbuster to close thousands of stores before it was clear that technology was going to pass them by, that decision would have meant putting thousands of employees out of work. And even then, it seems unlikely their business model could have possibly afforded them an opportunity to sink as much money as Netflix did into growing their digital presence with the other assets they had on their books that Netflix didn't have. Even to amass 2 million subscribers, they were burning through money. 
In fact, they took a loss with every new subscriber for Blockbuster Total Access. Had they relentlessly pursued that course, they probably would have gone to zero even sooner. But perhaps, you argue, well, wasn't this clear earlier? Shouldn't Blockbuster have seen this coming before the mid-2000s, before they grew to 6,000 stores, at the expense of an insignificant e-commerce presence, and their fate already sealed? And to that, I counter, do you still have books in your house? More and more people are turning to those e-books for their reading pleasure. And the latest data shows one in five adults now use e-readers, and that number is growing fast. About 10 years ago, analysts predicted, with the same vigor they did about online video, that print books would be all but eliminated by the year 2020. Ebooks, they contended, were the wave of the future. But today, ebooks account for less than 20% of the book market. In fact, a study by the British marketing research agency Vox Burner found that of consumers aged 16 to 24, more than 60% of them prefer print books to ebooks. Now, if you were Barnes & Noble and you heard that your business was going to be effectively obsolete in 10 years, do you panic and close all of your stores, putting thousands of people out of work in the process? No. Barnes & Noble launched an ebook division. They introduced a tablet, the Nook, while maintaining their physical store presence. They debuted it more than two years after the Amazon Kindle. In other words, about the same amount of time it took Blockbuster to respond to Netflix. But as of podcast episode publish date, Barnes & Noble is still here. Why? Because the industry experts just so happened to be wrong. Barnes & Noble was kind of just lucky. After all, Amazon has something like 40% of the ebook market share, according to Publish Drive, a site devoted to studying publishing trends. If consumer tastes had changed, like experts had predicted, Barnes & Noble would have probably been Blockbuster. This was more good luck than any business decision Barnes & Noble made. So let's go back to the year 2000 and your Blockbuster, you're sitting in a room with some tech startup you've never heard of. One that has lost $50 million in that year alone at the height of the dot-com bubble in which droves of internet companies are beginning to go to zero. And the NASDAQ Composite Stock Market Index has begun to freefall, eventually diving 78% over the next two years. Mind you, even without the context of the dot-com bubble, remember that 9 out of 10 startup companies fail. And according to the business publication Entrepreneur, nearly 15% of them come from Silicon Valley. And mind you, this is an industry that was still two years away from DVD sales topping VHS sales. And this is an industry that took another two years flip-flopping on something as seemingly trivial as whether Blu-ray or HD DVD format would win out. A rather small marketplace pivot that represented millions of dollars in losses for companies that chose wrong. And you're honestly surprised Blockbuster didn't jump at the chance to acquire them? Look, the victor is the one that gets to write the history books, and Netflix has the opportunity to paint a cleaner narrative today. But the truth is, for us to condemn Blockbuster, a company in the midst of its own financial troubles as it tried to scale towards profitability, 
for not seeing a future that was still more than a decade away from relevance seems rather bizarre to me. According to that profile I mentioned in Retail Dive, the year that Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy, Netflix's DVD-by-mail business was still the bulk of its business, and it only accounted for about 7% of the total industry. Significant, over-the-top streaming was still years away from relevance. Should we really think a company that was decimated by what was largely an impossible-to-predict shift in consumer behavior and technology when they started to scale their stores in the mid-1990s could have held on long enough and could have sunk billions of dollars on top of their already accumulating losses to compete with a Silicon Valley darling like Netflix or the movie studios? Which one is actually David? Which one is actually Goliath? No, to truly understand what happened to Blockbuster and to understand why we all perceive what happened to Blockbuster to be such an obvious case of a failure to innovate or to embrace new technology, we need to talk about two different cognitive biases. The first has to do with that little thought experiment I threw at you earlier in the episode. The one about your best friend telling you to never let her touch her inheritance, but then begging you to revoke that agreement decades later? This is a thought experiment I tweaked from a philosopher by the name of Derek Parfit, from his 1984 book Reasons and Persons. Regardless of what your answer to it would have been, this experiment is actually a puzzle about our identity. It challenges us to consider how we actually change a ton over the course of our lives. That philosophical question essentially is asking, which person is your real best friend? And therefore, who should you listen to? Is it the one that made the deal with you in the past, or the one that was coming to you to break it in the present? We change a lot over the course of our lives, and our minds sort of adjust our self-narrative to tell a clearer story of who we are. But that's more of our mind's revisionist history than it is any real consistency of identity. And the most fascinating finding on this subject was advanced by Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert and his colleagues in a 2013 study, one where they coined the phrase, the end of history illusion. The end of history illusion is our tendency to believe that who we are today is who we will be for the rest of time. When you ask people if their tastes have changed or if they've experienced significant growth over the course of their life, they're often quick to point out all of the ways in which they have changed over the course of the last 5, 10, even 20 years. But we all tend to believe that who we are today, that's it. We won't change for the rest of our history, and then we underestimate how much we will continue to change in our future. According to Dan Gilbert, we routinely make decisions in the present day that our future selves come to regret. Gilbert and his colleagues conducted six studies on nearly 20,000 people between the ages of 18 and 68. They found that people consistently underestimated how much their personality, core values, and even consumer tastes would change over the course of the next decade. 
In other words, if you asked someone how much they will value honesty, success, or pleasure 10 years from now, and how much their perspectives on their values have changed from 10 years ago, what you'll find is everyone, no matter their age, will vastly misjudge how much the balance of what's important to them will shift in a decade. The same is true for personality traits. Gilbert and his colleagues had people take personality tests and again found people underestimated how much their personalities would change with each passing decade. Even consumer tastes like music varied greatly. Participants were asked how much they would spend to see their current favorite band perform in 10 years, and on average, they said they would spend $129 for that ticket. But when Gilbert and his team asked these same participants what they would be willing to pay to see their favorite band from 10 years ago perform today, they said on average $80. This makes no sense. This gap between those dollar figures, it represents how much we struggle to see into a future where we will be different than who we are today. This relates back to the story of Blockbuster in two key ways. One, when we think about companies, we often incorrectly perceive them to be monolithic decision factories, immune to the flaws of human beings. But no, companies are nothing more than a bunch of human beings. And it's not like we humans are biased or fail to predict the future in our everyday lives and then walk into our office buildings and put on our rational hats. No, what trips us up in everyday life will also trip us up in the office. And that means we struggle to look into a future and predict how we will all change. And two, quite frankly, we are all terrible at predicting the future. And that includes experts. In the 1980s, political science writer Philip Tetlock had almost 300 political experts make about 100 predictions. He had the experts specify which of two outcomes they expected and also assign a probability to that prediction. 20 years later, Tetlock found that the experts did only slightly better than random guessing. In another study, a decade of dollar to euro exchange rate predictions made by nearly two dozen international banks like JP Morgan and Chase were examined. Each year, the banks made a prediction for what the exchange rate would be at the end of the year. And each year, they were very wrong. In fact, in six of the 10 years during the study, the end of year exchange rate fell outside of the entire range of all the bank's forecasts. Now this phenomenon of us human beings being terrible predictors across most industries, that would be bad enough. But what compounds it is another cognitive bias, one that often joins forces with it in a sort of lethal elixir that blinds us from ever noticing just how terrible we are at predicting the future. And it's called hindsight bias. Hindsight bias is our tendency to perceive events that have already occurred as having been more predictable than they actually were before the events took place. It's that feeling of, I knew it all along, even though we rarely ever know it all along. Here's two examples, one scientific and one observational. In 1993, researchers Dorothy Dietrich and Matthew Olson asked participants how the U.S. Senate would vote on the confirmation of a Supreme Court nominee. Prior to the Senate vote, 
58% of participants predicted the nominee would be confirmed. But after the nominee ended up being confirmed, when the researchers resurveyed the participants, almost 80% of them said they knew the nominee would be approved. Now, the observational. Remember the Super Bowl from a few years ago between the Patriots and the Seahawks? The one where the Seahawks chose to pass instead of run at the Patriots' one-yard line? Down by four points in the closing seconds? If you're a Seahawks fan, you may want to cover your ears for about the next 10 seconds. Second and goal. Play clock at five. Pass is intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. I'm sorry, but I can't believe the call. Me neither. I cannot believe the call. Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson was intercepted by Patriots defensive back Malcolm Butler, and the Patriots won the game. That decision to pass instead of run is still almost universally criticized by NFL experts and the media to this day. Sports Illustrated in 2015 called it, quote, the worst play call in NFL history, end quote. But here's the thing. The data was on Seattle's side. According to a report in ESPN, among the 39 running backs with at least 10 carries from the one-yard line in the past five seasons, including the playoffs, Seahawks running back Marshawn Lynch's touchdown percentage ranked 30th. In that very season, Lynch had five attempts to score a touchdown from the one-yard line. He didn't score on four of them. But regardless of whether you want to debate me on the merits of running versus passing at the goal line, I bet you have completely forgotten about the fact that head coach Pete Carroll also decided to throw the ball with the Seahawks at the Patriots' 11-yard line and just six seconds to go in the first half with his team down 14-7. Analysts universally declared in real time that he should just kick the field goal and not risk running another play that would run longer than six seconds. So if you're the Seahawks, do you dare... I mean, you have six seconds. I don't think you. I don't think you can afford it to, uh, to go for it. You want to make sure you get yeah. these three points out of here. Very risky. So Pete Carroll going against the grain, all things considered. But Carroll took the risk, and it turned into a Seattle touchdown. They tied the game at the half, 14-14, which meant that later in the game, Seattle is only in position to beat the Patriots because of Carroll's aggressive decision earlier in that game. But nobody remembers that anymore. We don't remember instances in which our predictions were wrong. We toss those aside instantly. But after the event takes place, when we have the good fortunes of now seeing how everything played out, well, as the saying goes, hindsight is 2020. This, to me, is why case studies always give me pause. Yes, of course, I see the value in looking backwards to understand what went right and what went wrong so that businesses, politicians, or sports organizations can better plan for the future. But my fear is that we often don't control for hindsight bias. We don't control for our relentless inability to predict the future. So even when we diagnose the faulty decisions of yesteryear, my question is, how much does that actually help us make better decisions in the future? 
And does the overconfidence we get from looking into the past and drawing a straight, cause and effect line from previous events, does that overshadow the knowledge that we can gain from doing it? Yes, Blockbuster was fatally flawed. Yes, they could have made some decisions earlier in their business's life cycle that may have extended their existence, and maybe even kept them in business. But the percentage chance that they would have made all of those right decisions in real time, honestly, they were slim at best. They're only obvious now, looking back on it, when we have the benefit of knowing exactly where technology evolved to and exactly which decisions worked and which ones didn't work. If you want to label them a dinosaur, go ahead. They weren't perfect. Far from it. But like most businesses, like most people, they're just making bets on where the future is headed and they're bound to be wrong more than they're going to be right. Look how often Netflix changed direction, and that was with the benefit of significant investment dollars and a business that was born at a time when they didn't have to worry about balancing all of that capital, all of those physical assets and employees. Heck, even the Netflix co-founders themselves differ on the origin story of Netflix. Hastings has told many outlets that he got the idea for Netflix after Blockbuster charged him a $40 late fee for Apollo 13. But Randolph, who left the company in 2002, has called that story fiction. He said they always wanted to be the Amazon.com of something. Which could be true, but considering when they started Netflix compared to when Amazon actually became a giant in the online space, well, the truth is probably somewhere in between. The point is that we're all pretty terrible at predicting what will happen next and explaining why something happened in the past. That doesn't mean we should stop trying, that we should throw our arms up in futility. I'm just arguing that we should all do our best to apply some balance, to recognize our shortcomings. Netflix wasn't the villain in the blockbuster saga. The villain was, to some degree, chaos, a nearly impossible to predict world that will swallow up some organizations simply for being born at the wrong time. The last blockbuster in Bend, Oregon, being kept alive by nostalgia, might not be a symbol of an iconic brand's failure to innovate. It might just be a piece of our past, a past where we all roamed those blue and yellow aisles on a Friday night, getting recommendations from a human being instead of an algorithm on what story we wanted to get lost in that weekend. For any of us living outside of Bend, Oregon, we can't make it a blockbuster night anymore. But we can keep their legacy alive not as a case study for how they and they alone struggle to plan for the future, but perhaps as a more humbling case study for how we all do. This is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. A big favor. As season one of my podcast series continues, I'd really appreciate it if you could consider referring an episode to a friend or family member that you think might get something from it. And if you've been enjoying it, rating it, or leaving a review if your podcast app allows you, would be a big help. Thanks.